buying online was, you know, a pretty poor experience. Buying yeah. offline, it was expensive. Um, service quality was bad and so, and so on and so forth. So those things mm. all crunched together to say, like, do this. Yeah, absolutely. So, so do it, we did. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to our podcast series, Talk Straight, Think Smart with Howard Kennedy. My name's Adam Wolford. I'm a partner at the firm and your host for this series. Today, I'm joined by Brian Harrison, co-founder of Swoon, the online furniture company. Yes, we know what you're thinking, another podcast by a law firm. But this podcast isn't about us, it's about the people we're interviewing. And today I'm joined by Brian Harrison, co-founder of Swoon, the online furniture company. Brian Harrison combined his frustrations of working for big corporates and an opportunity to improve a poor online buying experience. What resulted was Swoon, a design-led online furniture business. In this episode, we hear how he built the business with co-founder Debbie Williamson at a time when people didn't buy furniture they hadn't seen or touched, and we explore how technology enabled that behaviour change. We discuss complexities and volatility due to COVID-19 at a time when people wanted to invest in their home, which had also become their office, school, gym and restaurant. So Brian, we're here today to hear about the business you co-founded, but before we dig into the details, tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words. Um, I'm Brian Harrison. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Swoon. Um, I co-founded the company with um, an ex-colleague of mine from The Telegraph, Debbie Williamson. Uh, we, we ran Swoon as a test in 2012, but really kind of, you know, got the business going in 2013. Um, prior to that, I spent four or five years as the CEO at Woman 8, Woman 8. So I ran part of their European directory business. I also ran a daily deals business in six countries um, that was set up in 2008. Um, before that, I ran the digital business at the, the Telegraph Media Group, which is uh, where I met Debbie. So we've known each other for a very long time, worked together now for I think we're getting into our second decade, which is slightly concerning. Um, my background prior to that had been mostly in media and Debbie's is mostly in advertising. So we started a furniture business with zero experience of furniture, uh, which was both a good and a bad thing. Yeah. I think uh, a good thing in that if I'd have had any experience of furniture, I'd have probably never started a furniture business. Um, and and I, I, guess, I guess you just, you know, you learn a lot, you know, on, on, your, on your journey when you're a fast growing internet startup. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll we'll hear more about that as the uh, as the podcast goes on. But before we get on to the kind of uh, more formative stages, let's let's hear a bit more uh, about you before uh, you were you were involved with this. So let's go back to the beginning. What were you like growing up? Your earliest memories uh, or childhood uh, experiences? Ooh. So I'm a, I'm an only child. Uh, my father's in the army, so we moved about a bit. I spent kind of formative years in, in Germany. Um, and then he left the army, joined the police. Um, so he himself was fairly institutionalized, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we uh, I went to grammar school in Kent and I then went on to study economics at university in Nottingham. Um, after Nottingham, I spent probably about 10 years working mostly in um, the, the publishing industry. So firstly in magazines for a couple of years and then really in the late 90s, it was publishers that were launching the first websites. So, you know, it, it was it was there that I started working on internet-based businesses in 1997. So pretty, pretty, pretty early. Um, I actually, uh, I, I think, I think my first proper job working in, you know, on, a, on an internet project was actually in, in your profession. So um, I worked on the launch of the lawyer.com. And um, I, I built and launched um, with some colleagues, um, Lawyer Jobs, which is one of the big recruitment vehicles in, in the legal profession, and also Lawyer Diary, like an events management tool. Right. So yeah, boy, way back way back in the 1990s. Um, and, then, and then from there, I, I went into education. So I went and worked for City and Guilds, who um, are you know, one of the biggest vocational qualification providers in, yeah. in the UK and globally. And I built their their first uh, their first ever e-learning platform. That was actually very interesting. Um, and you know, I think I think those, you know, those kind of businesses and those kind of applications have become incredibly relevant during COVID. So, you know, my role there was to pull together a team of people. We built a whole bunch of learning um, learning management tools that were focused on colleges, assessors, and learners. Um, and then from there, I I worked for a directories business um uh working on building a whole bunch of local uh, advertising products with with google so i did that and then ended up at the telegraph where i met debbie and then yeah. my life was going to change forever but yeah, yeah and an and, and only child with a with a you know i think i think growing growing up overseas is um is 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 always quite you know it's quite, it's, it's it's quite interesting it stays with you forever you know, so still, I guess I, I am actually quite part German on my father's side, but still probably feel it a little bit today. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess it, it does bring an extra perspective or dimension to you, doesn't it, if, you, if you've lived abroad. So um, so obviously in those roles, you learned a bit uh, about digital and tech and so on. What else did you learn from those roles that you, you still carry with you today? Oh, I guess, I guess the... Um the common theme in most of them was that I was working in industries during a period in which they were being particularly disrupted. So, you know, the publishing industry moving from print to digital um, with it, you know, significant change in revenue models and moving away from in, you know, on the trade publication side, away from print advertising to subscription and um, digital advertising products um, and newspapers again like a big shift into e-commerce into paid subscriptions and then more latterly at, at woman eight you know a phone-based directories business trying to launch you know new, new business um, new business initiatives aimed at you know connecting I guess you know individuals with with local businesses and then at swoon um, you know when I when I started working on swoon with Debbie uh, I think less than 5% of all transactions in the category were online. Obviously, we've had periods of time in the last year where, you know, by default, 100% were, were, were online. So we've been living through this like seismic shift in, you know, people migrating from buying only from stores to, you know, omni-channel to, you know, solely digital channels. Mm. So I think that's the commonality. It's like being involved in an industry when it's going through its, you know, real kind of pivotal change point. <laughs>
So let's jump back to The Telegraph, where you first worked with your co-founder, Debbie Williamson. Um, how did the initial conversation with Debbie come up? Uh, well, in terms in terms of uh, Swoon? Yeah. I, I guess, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd taught... Uh, so we started Swoon, I guess, I guess I'd been... We'd worked together for three or four years in the in the mid two thousands, and then just stayed in touch. Um, and then had been talking a lot about wanting to, I, I guess you know, try and try and do something away from big corporates. I think one of we shared a common frustration about how hard it was to get things done working within wider organisations, especially ones you know the newspaper industry is in you know inherently political and. You know, getting things done is 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 hard, and often often the decisions about you know what what does and doesn't get a priority are can be a little bit difficult to understand. So we 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 formed our relationship against that backdrop, and and then we talked a lot about you know potentially starting something. Debbie had a particular passion in 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 furniture and interiors, and I was just interested in the category principally because it was you know one of the last big consumer categories. To move online you know as, mm. I, as i mentioned you know at the time you know digital penetration was like five percent or less in terms of consumer spend um and again you know the general pervading wisdom was that people wouldn't buy furniture that they hadn't seen or sit on and touched which is kind of not dissimilar to what people said about shoes what people said about travel hotels cars <laughs> you yeah. know every, every every consumer category so so for me it was just a matter of time before behavior changed um and it was obvious that technology was going to enable a lot of that a lot of that change not not just in terms of how product can be represented to consumers but also the way in which technology was you know really developing around the entire ecosystem to enable young businesses to get to get up and moving very quickly that you know at the at a very basic level that started really with the advent of e-commerce platforms so rather than having to go and build an entire you know, commerce-based website for hundreds of thousands of pounds, you could plug and play and, you know, yeah. adapt it yourself really, relatively easily. And, you know, what we've seen over that the, the, this period of time is that that's just, you know, increased tenfold. So every yeah. single function of the business is now technology providers that, you know, provide you tools that ordinarily you'd have had to go and build yourself with the dev team. So we just saw yeah. that, you know, this was a, a market that was on the beginning of its journey. There were very few you know, made.com who are now looking to float yeah. for you know significant sums of money on the stock exchange were really the pioneers in terms of you know a first direct to consumer brand solely digital um you know that started four years before we started our business but there wasn't really a you know a lot a lot going on and the market was really moving very 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 slowly um so that that's kind of what interested you know me in it and i think you know the conversations um debbie much like myself is pretty um you know pretty proactive in terms of just getting on with doing something and you know that that is probably one of the key attributes you need to start a business the willingness just to you know step forward and and do it and take a risk and get moving and try and figure something out um so there was quite a, an, an obvious delineation of skill set right from the, the get-go, which was great. So she set about building the website. That's kind of what she'd done working with me in the past. She'd built digital products. Um, she went out on sourcing trips all over the world. I started to try and work out like how the model would work, like how we were going to, what problems we were trying to solve, whether it was a business we wanted to raise money for, all these kind of things. So delineated, you know, our, our respective responsibilities and just, you know, just started 
yeah. I guess the big the big plunge point for us was we bought a couple of containers worth of furniture from a manufacturer and right. then just set about, you know, we you know, its arrival was the deadline that we had to have launched a website and figured out how to sell it. Yeah. So we just decided to take that risk, you know, let's take a risk, buy that furniture. And at the time we had a we had a van and a potential store lined up on the Northcote Road in Southwest London that we were going to sell this furniture out of in the event that we couldn't figure out how to sell it online. The we plan we'd just sell it. We'd sell it, keep it in my garage and sell it at the weekends. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was that kind of, I think, the, the backdrop of frustration at working at a big corporate, just wanting to get on and do something, seeing a big opportunity that we both had an interest in. Um, and it, it, it kind of coincided with me moving out of London, moving into a bigger home outside of London, having to buy furniture, seeing that actually buying online was, you know, a pretty poor experience buying yeah. offline. It was expensive. Um, service quality was bad and so, and so on and so forth. So those things mm. all crunched together to say, like, do this. Yeah, absolutely. So, so do it. We did. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you mentioned how um, at the outset you had quite clear delineation of the of responsibilities and different skill sets uh, obviously you you grew and you you brought pe- people in so how has that evolved over time and, and what's the shape of the business now um i get i guess it's it's evolved it's evolved a lot for for debbie more than it has for me so my role's always been the same as the you know as as as, as a ceo um, and the shape of the business has changed a lot like over like a seven eight year period so we we went from attempting to do everything ourselves so you know we had our own customer care team in london we had our own a pretty big development team we used to we decided that we'd run all of our digital marketing ourselves so we we went down a path of like trying to build big teams manage big teams to provide all of the functional requirements you know that that a business like ours needed um more recently in the last probably three years or so we moved away from that so we started to work with specialist partners who had specialist skills to do specialist parts of 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 our business so we're quite unusual in furniture in that we design everything ourselves so that's always been core to what we do we create all of our content we manage our own website all those kind of things but lots of functions that we used to have in-house so customer care is a good example um now is run with a great contact center that we work with you know they're a you know a, a really deeply integrated partner to us but they're based up in gateshead um they have a you know a really strong team a really strong management team they're really good at managing customer contact um and that was just something that we never really got to grips with very well you know trying to staff it resource it in in central london so the big the big change really has been that right across the business we've got preferred supplier relationships across a whole range of functions that means that the structure of the business now is much lighter so it's like a relatively thin management layer that Mm -hmm manages all of our vendors and those vendors are everything from manufacturers you know shipping warehousing delivery right through to things like customer care um our development is outsourced to a great company in manchester all of our photography is cgi based you see on the site that's done by a third party again it's all managed by our own internal photographers but the work is done by external partners that's really interesting because I can see parallels with that that we're seeing in the in, in the retail industry, particularly on the fashion side, with what Next are doing with Total Platform and stuff. It's a very yeah, so it's similar a, sort of, thing. and that and that's and that's been the thing for us. We've got experts in each of their domains. Design we own like mm. wholly because it's that's our principal IP, 
and then everything else we're trying to use the best in class partners and have you know you know good and long-standing and long-term formal relationships um i guess we'll come on to it but that was like I think it was probably, it was a decision we made in 2018. We'd migrated to that by 2019. So when we get into pandemic world, actually yeah. our business was already decentralized. Our, busy, our business was already predominantly remote. Yeah. Um, so that 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 was a huge advantage for us. We, we will come on to that. That would be really interesting to hear how how that's helped through, through this time. So t- tell me what's been your proudest moment with SWOO. Uh, oh... Let me think. Um, I think I think just starting it. I know it sounds a bit a bit bit ridiculous, but um, I think all too often um, people have ideas and then they don't commit. And you know, and I committed at a point in time in my life. You know, two young children, mortgage. You know, it's 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 kind of like it, optically, it's not the ideal time to start taking big risks in your life, no, especially absolutely. off the back of you know having a pretty decent job as the CEO of a business with you know thousands of employees and, and so on, so on and so forth. Um, so it was a big shift, and you know, big shift in gears, big shift in direction, big shift in kind of the the level of of involvement you have in you know very very detailed. You know, you know, detailed facets of a business compared to when you're, you know, CEO of something kind of, you know, broadly much bigger. Mm. So starting really for me personally um, was the the proudest bit. It was a, you know, it was it's been a an interesting journey, but it was a risk worth taking, and I'm glad I did it. Um, yeah, really, often, really often, as you say, often it is the hardest thing is is the starting and and yeah, the, the concept committed. of starting when you have so much to risk. Uh, is, yeah, I think I think I think you know, you can give yourself a million reasons why not to start. And mm-hmm. you know, when I talk to you know, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and prospective entrepreneurs, and most of the time, I suggest to them that it might not be something they want to do. You know, it's it's kind of I think most people think that it's something you know something that they'd really like to do. I think the reality is it isn't for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, at all um and you know there's there's great elements of it but there's also terrible elements of it and you've got to be willing to take that really take that first step and just not look back and most people aren't really willing to do that because Mm. of the risk of course it's a lot of risk you've got to have a pretty serious tolerance for risk or be in a situation where actually you've de-risked yourself um the, but the, most, holy, the, holy, the holy grail but few and far between very so. very very unusual and and often you find that people that you know don't have the risk you know it kind of might not have the energy either yeah you know yeah. the risk is a is a it's it's kind of like nuclear fission mm. yeah <laughs> um yeah, Spur, spurs it on it, it it does it it doesn't necessarily feel great all of the time but it's a pretty useful energy source absolutely <laughs> So Swoon is moving along, doing well, and then came 2020. When did COVID-19 and the impact it would have first register on your radar? Um, probably uh, it started to register in January, February, just because we started to see disruption in the supply chain out of the Far East. Not that we, we don't really make much, you know, we don't really have much stuff coming out of China. Mm. Um, and... We just started to see, we had sourcing people in Vietnam. We started to see lots of, 
you know, one of them had been in Singapore. There was lots of, you know, th those countries that had been exposed to SARS and MERS reacted really early, like mm -hmm. to, 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 to what was going on. So we'd seen the indicators of it. We didn't see anything in terms of consumer demand. We didn't see anything in terms of our own supply chain. And really that started in March and happened very, very quickly. Um, we were fortunate in that business was always already relatively decentralized in terms of like, you know, the, the functions were run by three, three PLs and we'd already moved to a two, three split working week. So two days, everybody had to be in on the same day. And then, you know, the other three days you could choose what you were doing. Mm -hmm. um, we'd just taken over a new office, which we moved into, had breakfast and then closed and never went back. Really? Um, yeah just you know we just couldn't like it was it was like you know, i think it was two weeks before the official lockdown and we were like look this isn't this just isn't the right thing to be doing we shouldn't be mm. doing this you know irrespective of what the government are saying like this i don't feel comfortable making people commute like, i just don't think it's a good idea um and then somebody in the office actually their partner was one of the early cases of confirmed covid in march uh or, or somebody they worked with it was you know there was an unusual circumstance um so we shut the office moved everyone to remote and did, didn't and we haven't gone back right. um and, and we've actually given up we've paid you know paid up our lease and given up our office and that that's uh, that's us done now in terms of regular office space so do you think do you, do you you already had some agility built into your business but did you have to search for greater agility and to to to, to be honest i mean the the team were really brilliant you know we had a lot to contend with so you know on the one side March and April started out with varying with hugely varying levels of demand so you know you'd have you know it, it was just all over the place it was very unpredictable and there was Armageddon was being predicted across every category really so we were very very worried um and then demand just you know after people had been home for four weeks and realized that the money that they'd not spent on coffee, they could now buy a new desk. Um, you know, we just started to see a, a, all, all of that kind of pick up quite significantly. And, and has it has it been confined to the the home office type of furniture where you've seen increased no, I just, spikes? I just, or? I just think the reality is that you know, for a year, people have, you know, our our customer is you know largely you know 30, 35 plus you know, living in a, a home that's probably more orientated towards being a forever home than a, you know, the, the, fir the first home. They're an age bracket on typically from like the made.com, you know, cu customer base. So their home is something that they've always invested in. And now all of a sudden it was a workplace, a school, a gym, you know, a restaurant. And, um, and then when things opened up a bit, you know, it was a pub and you know, a pub garden. Um, so, you know, the investment changed dramatically in terms of you know, there was a lot of unintended savings from mm. the kind of customer that we serve. Typically, there were commuters, white collar jobs, able to work remotely, not being furloughed. You know, they, they were in a good financial position, mm. um, albeit in terrible circumstances. And I think a lot of people just started to invest in, in, the, in their homes more. I think that's likely to continue at a macro level for the next year and a half or so, at least. Mm. And then I'm not sure what happened beyond that. Yeah. And so um, has that has that changed the way that you bring products to market or you assess product viability? No, the biggest the biggest thing that changed that was just the disruption in the supply chain. So the supply chains have just been hugely disrupted. So two months of factory closures, then unprecedented demand. So you know, getting factories back on track was always going to be difficult. But then you know, if it's if it's compounded with 
a big uptick in demand right across the entire category globally, then, you know, that puts factories under a, a lot of pressure. We're fortunate that in kind of, you know, all of our made to order sofa ranges, or the vast majority of them are made in the UK. Most UK factories closed uh, for two months and then most reopened and then haven't closed again beyond kind of you know localized outbreaks of covid within you know within within their environments sure um so that puts a lot of pressure on just supply which is difficult when you're selling products on lead time because it creates uncertainty for the customer about when they're going to get their thing which they obviously care about a lot and rightly so um and then there's been lots of other kind of volatility in you know global shipping markets were completely disrupted because all the containers in the world were in the wrong place because all the factories closed in china in march mm -hmm. um folks then essentially shut down because it got backed up with ppe um then we had i guess uh brexit which has brought in a whole bunch of new kind of complexities um that's taken a bit of time for everybody to get used to and then into European border closures because of the spread of COVID. So, you know, when you're trying to bypass um, ports and get things into Rotterdam instead of Felix so because Felix so closed, and then all of a sudden you now can't get a truck driver because they're not allowed to travel between certain countries. And, you know, it's really, really significant com complexity. Um, and that, that complexity is compounded because at the end of that journey is a customer waiting for a thing, of course. you know, in a, in a home, which they care about a lot. You know, third only after children, pets. Yeah. I'd, I'd say in in in, in that order. Yeah. Um, so so th those things were incredibly complex, but we were agile. We were able to deal with it. We were accustomed to working remotely very quickly. We didn't have the complexity of having to figure out what to do with stores or having part some people, you know, some people on very long periods of furlough and some not. You know, we didn't have any of those things to 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 to, to worry about. Um, Whereas most of the non-essential retailers, you know, that's that's a lot of disruption. I mean, I think yes. I think by and large they've done a phenomenal job in in managing that, right? Like that's, that's absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just running a website is hard enough. Mm. Let alone let alone you know a, a national you know a national network of stores on top of it with all the complexity that that brought. Then regional lockdowns and you know all those kind of things. Yeah. So we managed to bypass all of those. Very lean team you know, move to online working really easily. I think if anything, the business after three months was running better, you know, in terms of the organizational cadence of things. That, that's um, really interesting. So having sort of navigated all the challenges with the supply chain and, and, and got to that sort of point, what, what, what's your key takeaway from the last year that you're likely to carry through? Um, I think for us, you know, lots of what we do is very structured. So, the meetings that we have with our partners, the internal review sessions that we have across all elements of the supply chain, um, you know, how we sit down and review our marketing performance or our, our, our design licensing partners, you know, these things are all pretty formulaic and actually working kind of remotely and online makes that work quite well. It means that you can actually do a lot of those sessions sequentially because you're not, mm -hmm traveling around, you know, you, you actually end up having oddly a lot more deep contact with your partners because you're like, oh, actually we can do a weekly call for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So rather than catch up every 13 weeks, I'll just talk to you once a week. Mm -hmm. So you get much, much more interesting kind of contact with both the team and, um, and partners. The downside of course, is that 
we're very fortunate in that. So it's a it's a it's a small team, but it's a team that's largely been together for a long time. So the social fabric of it's already there. Mm. And it's, you know, it's under 50 people. It's like, a you know, it's a very small headcount business purposely. Um, but that means everybody knows what everybody else does. And, you know, I think that does a lot for trust. It does a lot for, you know, figuring out who you need to talk to about what, because there's only one person, because there's only one person that does each thing. Um, so all of those things kind of work very well for us. What we now need to figure out is, you know, something that we've done like just last week, actually, we got everybody to get like a bunch of the managers together to train them on workshop management and facilitation, both online and offline with their partners and start and like internal, internal stuff. Because, you know, when you start getting everybody back together and everybody just comes in and sits with their headphones on doing Zoom calls, it's like, what, what's the, what's the point? So there's a, there's a lot of point to get together to socialize and there's a lot of point to get together to problem solve. There's not a lot of point to get together and, you know, this look at each other through screens. This is this is a good example, right? This is something that would have taken me half a day, yeah. You know, and I'm I'm up for doing it because it's taken me forty five minutes. Absolutely, (laughs) it's just it's just quick, and you and you could do it. But but the 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 challenge is to look at where the benefits are and not for it to become the sole way of going and carry those through. Exactly, exactly. I think I think you know interpersonal contact, socialization especially with new people coming into the business, so critically important, but you're better off, you know, presenteeism isn't. I mean, and that's been the big takeaway for me is that, you know, most cultures in office land rely on presenteeism as being the measure of your participation. And actually, you know, we all know it's just not true, especially in this day and age, we can put headphones on. We've seen that for ourselves as well. Well, can you imagine, I bet when you started your... When you started out as as a, as a as a lawyer, how many of how many how many of your colleagues just sit around with their headphones on in the office? Thankfully, none. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you'd be fired. Yeah, you know, it's it, like it you know, a... put your headphones on and get a get a TV and pop it on the table and watch yeah. reruns and match we, the day. We, we we did have one gentleman who's lovely who used to listen to jazz uh, yeah. in the day, and you'd walk past his office and he'd have his feet up on his desk leaning back in the chair, eyes shut, <laughs> headphones on, listening to jazz. But he, he was at the last part of his career. Yeah. I think if I'd done it, it would have been greatly frowned. But, uh, but, that, but that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, presenteeism, is, presenteeism isn't a good judge of impact, but socialisation and collaboration are important. Can and sometimes agree. one created the other, but you can, you know, worry less about one and make sure the other's happening. You just have to put your mind to it, which mm. is what we're trying to do. Can agree more. <laughs> So, Brian, to end every podcast, we like to do a quick fire round. Don't overthink it. Just say what feels right. <laughs> God, I need my lawyer. You're fine. <laughs> I promise to be gentle. How many rooms in your house have swoon furniture in them? All of them. Are Zoom meetings here to stay or going to be a distant memory? Uh, here to stay. Would you rather grow your business, sell your business or start again? Uh, grow it. What would you invest more in right now, people or tech? Ooh, both, half and half, which is kind of what we do. It's literally half and half. You um, need the people to do the tech. Yeah, not, not so much that. It's, it's just that I'd like people to do the things that people are good at, you know, designing things, thinking, building relationships, like technology to do things that technology is good at, like repeatable tasks, like working out data. 
So around about half and half. Okay. And when it comes to decision making, are you perfection every time or launch and learn? Uh, launch and learn. Okay, so all that leaves me to do is thank you for joining us today. It's been oh, fantastic you, to hear your story. Really appreciate you taking time. No problem at all. And I'm sorry it took me so long to, to uh, get this done. No, it's all. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, good. Oh, whose dog's that in the background? Oh, that's excellent. That's one of my two dogs. That's the most they... amazing timing. <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it, from the frustrations of the corporate world, starting a new business and then turning the challenges of COVID-19 into positives to improve organisational cadence. This podcast was recorded over Zoom at the end of May 2021 as social distancing restrictions were starting to ease. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your content to find out which inspirational entrepreneur we're speaking to next. Thank you.